Recovery Elevator, episode 225. The biggest lesson that I've learned through recovery is acceptance, personal acceptance in particular. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we got Nick. He's 29 years old from Saginaw, Michigan. He's been sober for 101 days. In his interview, he talks about how things get better the longer we go without alcohol. Nick has a fantastic interview. You guys are going to love it. Guys, on the Recovery Elevator public Facebook page, every Sunday we have this thing called a sober roll call. And it's so awesome to see people shred the shame, put their name out there in the cyber world, and say how long they've been without alcohol. So please like the Recovery Elevator page, step up, shred the shame, and I don't care if you put a zero on the sober roll call. It doesn't matter. It's more than the amount of sobriety time you have. It's a collective movement. Uh, it's so awesome to see the the sobriety time just being added to that list. Again, it doesn't matter how much sobriety time you have. It just matters that you're trying. You guys, don't forget to follow Recovery Elevator on Instagram. It's basically just myself and Ben cruising around in nature in Bozeman, Montana. And hey, if you want to support the show, a good way to do it is just simply leave a review in iTunes. All right, and now let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. So here we are. We're at episode 225. 225 straight podcast episodes, and the format hasn't changed all that much. Um, but I want to hear what you guys want. So in episode 214, I interviewed a gal named Dr. Sue Mortar, talked about how the body and mind have the capacity to heal itself. Now, Dr. Sue is not in recovery. And I went back to check download stats, and um, that one was downloaded more than other episodes. So um, I love the format. It works. And currently, I cover a topic for five to ten minutes. And then I have a sobriety badass on the podcast. Today's example is Nick. Um, then I cover just a quick topic uh, at the end of the podcast. So, but I want to hear what you want. Do you want more industry professionals such as recovery coaches, authors, um, wellness leaders, thought leaders, things like that? Just let me know. Um, and if you like how it currently is, let me know as well. Leave a review, something like that. Okay, let's get started. I was recently interviewed on a podcast called Self Made and Sober, and the host, Andrew Lassis, who I think he's been sober for uh, five to six years, he asked me a great question. That question was, he said, hey, Paul, 
I know you initially got sober in 2010 for two and a half years and then uh, back on the hamster wheel of addiction for uh, another year and a half, two years. And then you had my sobriety date of September 7, 2014. His question is, so what was the difference for those first two and a half years to um, from September 7, 2014 on? This is a fantastic question that has an easy answer. Okay, so the first 2.5 years, okay, and I had a sobriety date of January 1st, 2010, and I made it to, I don't know the exact date, but it was August of 2012. Now, I went big on New Year's 2009, went to the Barnes & Noble bookstore on January 1st, 2010. My hands were shaking, and I had to work at California Pizza Kitchen at Northgate, Seattle, and I pulled a book off the shelf called Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum. I didn't read it cover to cover right then because I had to go I had to go wait tables at CPK, Great California, or Great Barbecue Chicken Pizza. I <laughs> love that pizza. But I devoured that book in the following months. And prior to that, I'm going to back it up for a quick second. Um, my body, as it had been doing so for the previous five to eight years, had given me nudges, indications, signposts that something needed to change. Um, in that moment, I wasn't 100% certain it was alcohol, but on January 1st, I decided to give that a go. But two months prior, I think it was September or October 2009, my grandpa passed away. I was at his funeral, and next to his casket, there was a photograph of, of him on a tank at World War II, rifle slung over his shoulder, and it hit me. I knew I wasn't reaching my full potential in life. I envisioned him looking down, and I, there I was. I was hungover as shit. Puffy face, sweating, just not feeling good. And here I was looking at my grandpa who served our country for all of World War II. In fact, that's where he met my grandma in France. Check this out. Um, he liberated a town south of France, met my grandma, and he said, if I survive the war, sweetheart, I'm going to come back and marry you. And guess what happened? He went from France to Belgium to Holland to, he went to Italy and then Germany, I think and survived the war, went back to that town, married my grandma, had the pleasure of reading their memoirs a couple years, about 10 years ago for a, as a Christmas gift. They have both passed away, but what a beautiful, beautiful story. And I, I remember looking at that photo and I said, this is something has to change. So on January 1st, 2010, um, I made a declaration to go 30 days without alcohol. <laughs> I remember actually at day 23, I had a, at a gathering at my house and I emptied out a Bud Light bottle or a Miller Light bottle and filled it up with water. I was nowhere near equipped with the tools, how to burn the ships, how to have these conversations, reverse interventions, as we say. Um, so nobody knew I wasn't drinking, but I just was drinking water out of a Miller Light. Day 30 hit, and I, I had a crossroads. Uh, I was starting to lose weight. I started to feel good. Uh, my face was less puffy. Um, working in a restaurant became easier. Uh, just, just life got better. And so I decided to go another month. Um, and then I made it into month three, uh, and then insert pink cloud that showed up around month two and a half. And, and I was rolling. Okay. I was rolling here about month six. I finished, uh, the intensive, uh, the intensive summer at university of Washington. And then I did my internship at Montana state University at the football team. I was working with the defensive backs for the Montana state football team. Go Bobcats beat the Grizz the last three years in a row. Sorry, Grizz fans. <laughs> and, and things were cruising. The pink cloud was there. The listeners, the pink cloud is what, what shows up for some when you remove alcohol from your diet and things just start to get better. Physically, I felt great and mentally, the fog began to lift. 
So back to this question. So what happened after two and a half years? Okay. So moving forward for this two and a half period, it was a mindset of lack. It was a mindset that something was missing, that I couldn't do something. It was a mindset that, yeah, I'll go to Vegas with you guys, which I think I did a couple times, but I can't do X, Y, Z. I can't drink. I can't do shots at the bar. I can't participate in bottle service and spend shit tons of money uh, on overpriced drinks. You get the point. And so this mindset for two and a half years was, was a sacrifice that I wasn't able to participate in life like others, like the friends I was hanging out with, that something was missing. And so looking back, and as I've covered on this podcast, when we, when we approach anything in life, whether it be a diet, a new goal, when we approach the mindset with lack, when we approach the goal with this mindset of lack, then it's not going to last. And so right around two and a half years of sobriety, a gal reached out to me who knew I didn't drink, who was struggling with alcohol. And my, myself and my friend, Nate, a good friend of mine who's been interviewed, I think is episode seven. Uh, he just hit nine years of sobriety. Nice job, Nate. We took this gal to an AA meeting. Now, this was my first meeting as well. This was a first step meeting. I think they found out it was her and my first meeting. And it went around the room that, and we, we it was a drunk log, right? So in the room, I heard stories of divorce, bankruptcy, DUI. There was even a story of a guy who killed somebody while drunk driving. And as the stories went around the room, there was an energetic idea that started to build momentum. It started to increase its energetic frequency. And that was the fact that I didn't have a problem because I didn't experience these things. And uh, I learned a big lesson um, the following week was focused on the similarities and not the differences. I completely missed the boat that, yeah, I, I also had a drinking problem, but I heard of all these things that hadn't occurred to me yet. Keyword yet. That's the yet scale. And some of these things did happen to me later on down the road. So no joke. I went to this AA meeting after two and a half years of sobriety, got the idea in my mind. Congratulations, Paul. You don't have a drinking problem. I said the three most dangerous words. I got this, which are almost always followed by a relapse. And my story is no different because I think it was two days later. I drank two days later. I drank and I picked up right where I left off and I cover this in my book, which hope to goodness should be launching within a month. Um, what happens with binge drinking, there are tetrahydroisokinolines that build up in the brain. These are THIQs. And this is one of the, one of the only non-reversible brain changes that can happen. And this is responsible when we take a couple of years off or a month off, two months, whatever away from alcohol. And then when we drink for the first time, it's like we never stopped. So after two and a half years of sobriety, drank all the alcohol in the house, I think it was like two or three bottles of wine, several beers. And at two 30 in the morning, when the gas stations were closed, liquor stores were closed. I was Googling if I could drink rubbing alcohol or hydrogen peroxide. Okay. So yeah, you pick up right where you left off. I had to learn that several times. So the first two and a half years was on willpower. It was, it was out of a mindset of sacrifice that something was missing that I was going through life, unable to do something. Okay. And that's off willpower, which I've said on this podcast many times is finite and exhaustible. And, you know, I kind of beat myself up for drinking after going two and a half years without it, but holy shit, Pablo, Pablo church. If I ever moved to a Latin American country, that's my nickname, Pablo church. Good job, man. I made a two and a half years off willpower and it got tough at the end. It did. And it was building and building and building. If I hadn't gone to that meeting with that gal, I would have drank regardless anyways, probably within the next couple months. So 
jumped back on the uh, the downward spiral of addiction. Things got a little worse. Like I mentioned, the Yet scale got a DUI driving to work, failed suicide attempt, spent a night in a suicide-proof jail sale. But overall, it was just the emotional rock bottoms. I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I eventually quit drinking on September 7, 2014. We'll quickly cover the surrender moment. I was DJing at a wedding the night before, drunk. Um, I had driven up to that wedding, drunk. Even though I got a DUI just a couple months before, I had a broken taillight as well, okay? This is not an issue of intelligence. There's something bigger at play here. This, this is, alcohol is one of the, the, the most cunning and, and the sneaky drugs we can ever consume, okay? And so, but I had a moment of clarity at this wedding while, while drinking on my way to, to being fully intoxicated, which is rare to have a moment of clarity. But I knew if I kept drinking at this wedding, um, A, I, I was going to ruin the wedding. Um, that's not fair to a bride and groom, obviously not. And I feel terrible for doing this, but there was some divinity in this. There was, there was a DJ who just finished a nonprofit event a couple miles away, called him. He came finished my wedding, did a great job, had a friend come up from Bozeman to pick me up. And I, and I, and I got, and I, I made the decision to go to rehab on the way down the mountain, called my mom, dad, my brother, 15, 20 times each did not reach them. They, they called me back the next day and I said, well, Jesus, what's wrong at 45 missed calls between the three of us. I said, you know what? Um, I think I might need to go to rehab, but something feels different today. Give, give, give me a day. And, and the next day, it something felt different as well. And so starting from September 7, 2014, the mindset was different. I knew that I had to quit drinking, but it wasn't out of sacrifice. I knew that space was being created or things were being cleared away from my plate. And this one, it's an insidious drug called alcohol for better things to come. Of course, there were rough times. Of course, I took bites of the shit taco daily for the first 30, 60, 90 days. In fact, the first 30 days, I had to go up to a place called Spanish Creek. I did hikes almost every day simply to remove myself from the temptation of driving down the store saying, oh, hey, the gas station, liquor store, right? It was hard. Probably the hardest, (laughs) probably, okay, correction there, was the hardest thing I've ever done. But in the back of my mind, I knew that every time I went to bed and the instant I woke up, I was doing this for a different reason. Not out of fear that if I continue to drink, I know the terrible things that will happen. Again, that's because you're going on willpower, but I did it because there was a light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't know what that light was, and that light started to shine inside. So there was this opportunity in front of me, and I let the opportunity show up, okay? And it's still an opportunity. And I even made the mistake of viewing the opportunity as a future date. But keep in mind, each day is an opportunity. It's not when I get sober 30 days, then the opportunity has arrived. Or when I get sober two years or five years or 10 years, then I've got this tremendous opportunity. I can do whatever I want to do. The trap has already been set if that's the mindset. So the mindset is a daily look. I have got this neat opportunity in front of me right now. And, and anything is possible. And the beauty of that statement is that all beliefs are limiting. Now, I don't want to be the guy that comes on a podcast and says, hey guys, you can do anything you put your mind to. But I'm going to be the guy right now that comes on this podcast and say, you can do anything you put your mind to and that all beliefs are limiting. Seriously, in sobriety, if there's a belief that says, well, you know, I think I can, I can, I can accomplish this goal. 
shelve that goal and go bigger. It doesn't matter if you get that or not. The point is you can do anything because all beliefs are limiting. In fact, the universe wants you to quit drinking so it can express itself in different expressions on the form level. This is where it gets cool without alcohol. I've seen it myself. I've seen it with other people. And most likely these ideas for these expressions are going to come to us in the gut, not through the mind. Now in this mindset of opportunity and growth that I've been in for almost the last five years, I've had some incredible downloads. Some of it through meditation, some of it just sitting on a bench, some of it walking and driving, etc. And through this mindset of opportunity, there's some cool things on the horizon. And some of them that I've, I've actually shared about on the podcast, I feel, well, let me correct that. I'm being pulled to open up a wellness retreat center. Seriously, this is an idea that's gaining so much energetic weight at the atomic level, I can't get out of my mind. So we'll see what's going to happen with that. And I don't know it's going to be in the addiction arena. I don't know. Um, but I think it's going to be a wellness retreat center. And most likely it's going to be somewhere where the weather is, is uniform throughout the entire year. I'd love to do it in Montana, but hey, guys, the winters are brutal. Well, they're not brutal. They're just, just cold. I want a garden where we can work with, with the land. Um, it's going to be tough to do a garden in wintertime in Montana. So that's the difference from the first 2.5 years of sobriety to where I'm at right now is currently I'm in a mindset of opportunity that anything is possible, that all beliefs are limiting, right? And this is where you insert some, some cool universal laws like the law of manifestation where your internal environment is going to be manifested in your external environment and vice versa. There's a neat quantum law that says what you seek is also seeking you. And when I was drinking, I was seeking some pretty low level shit. It just, it just wasn't working. And so remove the toxin. Um, I've been seeking some cool stuff and it's been showing up. Okay. I hope you've enjoyed this introduction. I've, I've had a good time putting it out there for you guys. And before we hear from Nick, this one's actually a great sponsor they all are, but they've sent me some, some great products, which is directly applicable to, to recovery, which is nutrition. Let's hear from our sponsor today. Green chef. What is Green Chef? Well, Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. Everything is handpicked and delivered right to your door. Green Chef makes cooking easy with dinner options that work around your lifestyle, not the other way around. This is deliciousness delivered. Enjoy clean ingredients you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. Let Green Chef do the meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep work for you week after week. Meal plans include paleo, plant-powered, vegan and vegetarian, pescatarian, keto, gluten-free, and omnivore. All are great sobriety fuel. And like I mentioned, they sent me some fantastic samples, and my favorite was the Thai pork salad. It's got kale, sautéed red bell peppers, red beets and cashews. It took me about 25 minutes start to finish, and it was delicious. For a total of $75 off, it's $25 off each of your first three boxes. Go to greenchef.us forward slash elevator75. Once again, that's greenchef.us forward slash elevator75. Nick, how are you? I am wonderful, Paul. Thank you so much for asking. How are you doing today? Hey, Nick, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. And let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? 
I have been sober off all substances for 101 days since uh, January 25th of 2019. Nice job, Nick. How's it feel? It feels amazing. It's the greatest gift that I've ever given to myself. I, I wake up each day and it, it's it's a new adventure. I, I've never been more excited for the day just to begin. Yeah, before we get too far into your story, what's the biggest lesson you've learned thus far? The biggest lesson that I've learned through recovery is acceptance, personal acceptance in particular. I realized that the biggest reason why behind my my alcohol and drug abuse was I, I was never comfortable with myself. I never accepted myself for where I am at and who I am. I was always trying to conform to other people's opinions of me, other people's norms, other people's thoughts. And being able to accept myself and and realize who I am, what I'm passionate about, and where I'm at in life has been hands down the most important thing about this journey thus far. And if you go down this journey long enough, you're going to hear the words acceptance is the answer, which is key. I fully agree with what you said. In fact, page 417 of the big book is one of my favorite pages. It's got a passage called acceptance is the answer. Acceptance that no matter where we're at on this journey, we have to find acceptance. We have to find peace and gratitude within. So I love it. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from. What you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, Nick, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, I'm from a little town called Saginaw, Michigan. It's about an hour and a half north of Detroit, Michigan. For fun, I I really am figuring that out. I'm realizing that everything is, is fun for me now, which is surprising because in my addiction, nothing seemed fun. But now I just, I enjoy spending time with people, living in the moment and, and being present can make just the people you're with anything, anything be fun or enjoyable. I really like disc golfing, being outside, hiking, all that sort of stuff. And then family, uh, really close with my family. I am divorced, which was a result of my addiction, but my family is from Saginaw. I actually moved back to be closer with my family following um, an overdose and they've really kept me together. So that's been awesome. Um, as far as what I do, I'm about to start a position up at, with an organization called Families Against Narcotics, which is a nonprofit organization here in Saginaw, based out of Michigan, that looks to spread awareness on the opioid epidemic and and help people get into treatment. Nick, I love how you said uh, you're still figuring out what is fun, and everything is fun. There's something that a, a new hobby of mine that I never thought would be enjoyable, uh, because most things you do for fun in, involve action. This one that I'm diving into is just sitting. It's nothing. I mean, I'm finding I enjoy just sitting and doing nothing. Have you been able to relax and enjoy that more recently? So, totally, totally, Paul. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because one, I would say one of the most fun things that I do nowadays is meditate. Uh, I, I, I've never been one to just sit still and, and think on my thoughts, and now I meditate every day. It's it's one of the most incredible experiences of my day. I look forward to it. And before that would have never been fun to me. I, mean, I always had to be doing something, but but now I'm, I'm comfortable in my own thoughts. I'm comfortable where I'm at. Yeah, ironically, the thing that I perhaps like to do most is nothing. Right. Yeah, these, these action items such as meditation that used to be work, now I like to call it bliss work because they're the, they're the most enjoyable times of the morning and evening for myself. So I'm glad you're starting to experience some of that as well. And Nick, give listeners some background with your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, how much you drank. Did you ever attempt to moderate? When did you start? When did you realize that it was becoming problematic? Um, And do your best to to give listeners timelines and ages 
things like that. Yeah, I started my drinking uh, as well as my other drug uses when I was 14. And for me, alcohol was always a tool that I used to find acceptance. So I still remember the first time that I got drunk. I was at a friend's house. And even from that very first time, I, I realized that I didn't drink like other people. I just didn't have this off switch. And th there was really no slow progression into addiction and alcoholism. I was, I was an addict from the first time I took a drink. Just because I, I love that release that I got, it was a feeling of relief that I had never experienced before. Shortly after that first time that I started drinking, I became pretty good friends with the guy who worked at a liquor store about a mile from my home. And one day I got enough confidence to slam down a six-pack of Smirnoff wine coolers on the counter, and he sold them to me. So from that day on, the rest of my high school career, anytime that I saw his blue cobalt parked outside the store, that meant that I was stopping there to get drunk for the evening. I probably drank more than most high schoolers. My drinking really didn't take off, I would say, until college. Uh, this would have been 2008. To me, it's just kind of unsettling how widely accepted binge drinking is on college campuses. While my other drug use was kind of kept hidden, drinking was the norm. I was drinking three, four, five nights a week heavily, and it didn't seem like a problem because that's what everybody else was doing. And in a lot of ways, I believe that because of this, alcoholism is the greater problem that's facing our society because of how widely accepted that it is. We're conditioned as a culture to really believe drinking is an accessory to enjoy life. So I, I drank pretty consistently from the time I was in high school or college throughout graduation. In 2012, my drinking and drug use really started to become a problem. That's when I graduated. At that time, my brother went to rehab for the first time. And when he went to rehab, I felt very guilty because I was the one that introduced him to drugs. And I, I said to myself that I was going to you know, cut back, slow down, but I couldn't do it. And ironically, I, I found myself drinking more and taking more drugs, even though I was telling myself the exact opposite. But I was able to rationalize it in my own mind because I was still doing all of the things that I thought that I needed to be doing to maintain a healthy and productive life. I was still doing well in school. I, I was working a job. I, I was doing everything on the outside that looked normal. I was just binge drinking three, four nights a week and, and taking drugs every other day in between. And, and Nick, can we drill down in that for a second? It sounds like there's some major cognitive dissonance going on, which happens with everybody on this process where you tell yourself one thing, but externally you're doing something different. What was that like for you? How did it feel? I felt powerless. It felt like, like I was out of control. And the only way that I could, the only thing that made me feel better was more drinking, more drugs or alcohol and then rationalizing it in my own mind where it's like, well, you're, you're doing all the right things. It's okay. You don't need to worry about a lot of minimizing. I, I was convincing myself that it wasn't a problem, even though I had already set the baseline for that it was a problem. I, I, was, I was doing a lot of, of talk, personal self-talk to say otherwise. And it, it felt terrible. It felt like I was out of control. So that was 2012. I graduated college that year in 2012. In 2014, I was, I, I really kind of lost my mind. I was working at a mortgage company out of Detroit. Uh, I got married that year in 2014. And in July of 2014, I went to rehab for the first time. By this point, I was literally insane. I ended up in the hospital 
like three times that year. I, I couldn't I couldn't keep it together. It wasn't even that I was maintaining a, a normal lifestyle from the outside. I was I was a train wreck, drinking every night, consuming drugs every day, and then in September of 2014, my wife kicked me out. I moved back home and. I was just at a rock bottom. I, I was doing drugs and drinking daily. And then on December 6th of 2014, I had a really bad overdose. And I ended up in the hospital for about two weeks. They weren't sure if I was going to make it for a while. I ended up going back to rehab about two weeks later. So the first week or the third week of December in 2014. And that's when there was like this shift in my, my, my mindset. I kind of finally accepted that I wasn't in control, that I, I couldn't control anything really. My life was unmanageable and left to my own devices, I was just going to self-destruct. So I went to a rehabilitation program inpatient in Florida. I was there for three months, interestingly, with my brother. He went as well. Wait, were you guys in rehab at the same time? Yes, same time, same program. Brother bonding there. Um, right. And real quick, you mentioned that you accepted that you no longer had control. There was a mindset shift. What was that like? Because what happens when there's a mindset shift, that memo goes to the unconscious mind. What did it feel like when that happened? It was a huge relief, honestly. It felt like I could just let go and let God take control, my higher power. It was amazing. I, I say to this day that 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 overdose, that near-death experience was the greatest experience of my life because it showed me acceptance. It taught me that I don't need to be in control of everything and that I can't if I want to be in control of everything. You know, in our addiction, we're so stubborn. I thought that I could literally control when I took my last breath. And that was just so selfish of me and so, so wrong. And the, this, this shift in my mindset really, really set me straight that, you know, you're not in control. And it was, it was amazing. And more than just just that, it shifted my perspective on a lot of things. Like a lot of the the guilt that I held on to for so long, it, it just all kind of disappeared. And and I, I just came out the other side. A lot things were a lot more clear to me. And Nick, if you explore recovery, addiction, this journey, these pathways, the word control will consistently pop up, especially in 12-step meetings. And ironically, one of the biggest paradoxes of all time when it comes to addiction, recovery, the healing process, is when we give up control, that's when the rubber meets the road. And this was the same thing for me because with every other problem we encounter in life, thinking, we just say, well, let's double down. Let's uh, get up earlier, hit the gym harder, nose to the grindstone even more, and, and tighten that grip of control. And we can, we can navigate the majority of life dilemmas issues that are put in front of us. Now, when it comes to addiction, and again, why this is so hard is because at first it does work to control the internal environment, the internal turmoil, the emotions we're experiencing with an external substance. For this podcast, most listeners have done it with alcohol, and it works. We are, for a period of time, able to control the internal environment with the external substance, alcohol, and we can control the emotional state. Feeling depressed, anxious, stressed, no problem. Insert alcohol, it goes away. 
Eventually, we reach a moment where the alcohol no longer works. It's creating more internal distress. It doesn't work. We have to drink more and more of it. We reach the greatest pickle of all time. What now? And some of us keep going down this path, and that can get ugly. But for the majority of listeners who are listening and people who have been interviewed on this podcast, they reach a moment where they stop fighting and they give up control. And you mentioned when that happened, you, you, you feel fantastic. And you say, like, well, say I give up control, but it's when, it, when the window of clarity opens and you, you, the unconscious mind gets the memo that control is, is no longer part of the plan. So, wow, it sounds like you're in rehab with your brother. What a, what a tremendous bonding experience, I imagine. Um, tell us more about that. Um, and what happens next? Yeah, I mean, it was a great experience. We were there, like I said, for three months. Were you guys roommates? No, we weren't. They kept us apart for the first 30 days when we went through the detox. We were actually in two different facilities, and then we went to like a IOP-type uh, program. It was still residential, but it was at a different location, and we were still apart then, but at that point, we actually had some overlap. We didn't even see each other for the first month that we were there. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, they tried to keep everyone separate that was going there with a loved one. And then, um, yeah, we... Uh, we got together, we, we went through the program after like in January of that year. And like I said, I had this major shift. He did not on the ride on the way home from from the rehab facility, he actually ended up getting a beer on the, the plane ride back. And I was like, oh, You're insane, man. Yikes. And this was after ninety days? This was after ninety days. And the first thing he did when we got out was got a beer, man. I was like, Dude, were you like on, so you were on the plane with him as well? Were you sitting next to each other? He ordered a beer. And Nick, you probably weren't like, okay, you do you, man. You probably had a couple words. What, what did you say to your brother? I got angry just because like at that point it was like, dude, we just got out of this program for 90 days. You've been in and out of programs. This is like number 15 for you, man. This is number four for me. I literally just was knocking on death's door a few months back and you're going to drink, man. This is insanity. This is like what's got us here. What are you doing? What, what did he say to you? Like, it's, hey, this is just a flight. It's just one beer. What did he say? Yeah, I mean, he minimalized it. It's exactly what he said. He's like, it's just a beer. It's just a flight. Uh, his problem has always mostly been opiates, although now I would consider him most definitely an alcoholic, which it's interesting that he, he switched from one substance to the next. But he, he just minimized it and just – the same old mindset as before we went into rehab where it's just, you know, rationalizing his behavior. So this is 2014. Now your mm -hmm. sobriety date from alcohol is January 25th, 2019. Um, mm -hmm. Walk us through what happened. Um, you said you, you left the hard drugs at that moment, but you kept drinking, right? Yeah. Pick us up to speed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've practiced, I've been active in recovery since 20, uh, 2000, well, at this point, we're in 2015 now because that was at the end of 2014. Um, I've been active in recovery. I've had slip-ups, relapses, never with the hard drugs between since now and then. And then on the last, my last slip-up was at a party for the Royal Rumble, if any wrestling fans listening. And um, I was with some friends. They knew what I was I was doing and that I was, I was working on sobriety. And I was like, you know, guys, well, I don't want to drink anymore. And at first, I thought that they would judge me, but this is because this is friends that I know from high school. I wasn't sure that how they would take that, but I, I told them this, and they were like, you know, we we totally understand. They were super like accepting, and that was that was the last time that I drank. Wow, was it was that January twenty fourth this year? 
Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you're at a Royal Rumble arena? Is that what I'm hearing with with your? With I, your I wasn't friends? at the. We were at a showing of it. We weren't at the actual. Oh, event. Okay, at at a, at a showing. I love it. And, and Nick, we have some uh, some similarities here. So in 2014, uh, both me and you, we had a rough year. Um, that was a lot of growing pains, but actually a tremendous year for me and my personal growth. It all had to happen. But I was at a, at my fantasy football league draft, and we went to a Denver Broncos preseason football game. And I saw Peyton Manning throw one pass against the Houston Texans. I saw the beer guy walking up. We were in the last row of Mile High Stadium. I saw the beer guy walking up. I told my buddy, I said, hey, I got to go to the bathroom room. Um, but I knew what was going to happen if I stayed. I left the stadium and a bench outside of the Mile High Stadium. I sent a text message to the other seven members of my league, which are my best friends from high school, college, and my brother. And I thought the same thing that you just said. Um, I crafted a message that said, Hey guys, I'm really struggling with alcohol. A lot of you guys know I don't drink, but it's, it's a bigger issue than I have let you guys know upon. And when I hit send, I thought, I thought I was going to be with seven less friends that they were going to judge me. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that wasn't the case. I, I, I didn't, that wasn't my sobriety date. Unlike yours, I actually went back to the hotel room and tried to put myself in a, a safer environment. Ironically, there was, there was beers in the hotel room. I finished all the beers, but a couple of them left the game, um, against my wishes and came back and hung out with me at the hotel. Um, and it, and those are still some of the best friends that I have today. We're in the same fantasy football league. We go somewhere every single year. This year we're going to Los Angeles, going to go camping on the beach and all of them know uh, about my goal to, to not drink. And they're extremely supportive. So it's neat, um, how we hear similar stories and that's actually the more common story. Rarely do I hear stories where people tell their friends and they're like, dude, peace. We no longer have space for you in our lives. Yeah. That's, I mean, that was totally what I expected. I was like, they're not going to want to hang out with me. You know, I, I don't think any of them are necessarily alcoholics, but they, they all drink. And I was like, I, I expected to be kind of just taken out of the group. And they, if anything, they made me feel like it was foolish that I would even consider that. They're like, look, we totally, like, we know your story because I'm very open about what everything that's happened to me on my website. And they're like, totally, we get it. You know, it makes sense. We're not going to think any differently of you or nothing's going to change. Just do what's best for you, man. And, and they've all been super supportive since. Yeah. And Nick, let's talk about these slip ups from 2014 to 2019. And I love how you use the term slip ups. Um, I don't like the word relapse. In fact, in my book, I call it field research because it's with all these slip ups, this field research that I had to do where I learned valuable lessons. So maybe talk through a couple of those with us and the lessons you learned and how you got back on it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, at first I thought that I had this false belief that, you know, your your main problem was was opiates. You can still drink. And again, that's just me rationalizing, rationalizing my actions. But the, as far as like the slip ups are concerned, I got to the point where drinking just wasn't fun for me anymore. And I just felt more than anything guilty about everything that it was taking from me. Um, I wasn't drinking super frequently like I said, between 2014 and 2019. But every time that I did drink, there was a lesson to be learned. For example, I would drink and then I would be too hungover to go to a meeting or something. And then I would go to a meeting and I would have to say, hey, and everyone at meetings are super supportive when, when you do have a slip up like that. Hey, I, I relapsed again. Or I still had another slip up. It, it was just like everyone wanted the best for me. But I was the only person holding myself back. And that was really the biggest lesson that I've learned from them was alcohol is, is going to hold me back. 
just like the drugs did. So I need to be totally sober to reach my fullest potential. Can you expand a little bit more on what you said where I was the one holding me back? Yeah, for sure. With the, the drinking, I mean, it just it wouldn't let me operate on my fullest potential. So I, I was the one making the, the choices to, to drink. It wasn't like it was with when I was super deep in active addiction. It, was, it still felt like it was a choice to me. Whereas like when I was in the active addiction, it was like it was no longer a choice. Like I didn't get to that point with alcohol, but I knew that it was a dangerous road. And if I kept doing what I was doing, that I would progress to that point. So it, it still felt like I was the one in control of my decisions. But those actions were also very self-defeating. I, I was really hurting myself as far as my family, like they're so proud of me with everything that I'm doing with the site. Yeah. If I'm drinking, like it's just very like hypocritical. So it was really, it was the thing that was holding me back more than anything was still using any sort of illicit substance. Okay. That makes sense. And that's a monumental step on this journey for everyone. When we can recognize the true culprit of what's holding us back. And that would be alcohol. I recall in September of 2009, when my grandpa passed away, I was at the funeral and next to the casket was a framed picture of him standing on top of a tank rifle slung over his shoulder during World War II. It was an epiphany moment where I knew that I was not reaching my full potential. There was shame and guilt. And I said, if my grandpa knew what I was doing in life, the amount that I was consuming and the amount that I wasn't accomplishing, shall we say. And it was only a couple months later when I began my journey into sobriety on January 1st, 2010. Um, I made it two and a half years, but it was a tremendous, uh, it, it was, it was a huge push forward for myself. So I, I get what you mean with that. And, and so around January 25th, um, doesn't like sound like it was a rock bottom moment. It sounds like it was, it was a burning of the bridges of sorts where you came out to your friends, um, and and then you just left it be let it, let it be behind you. Tell us more about that moment and how you did it the first week, two weeks, a month. It's just so interesting that you said that about your grandfather because one of the big turning moments for me as well was when my grandmother passed. Uh, this was in January of 2018, and that's when I, I started to create everything with the site. So another strange uh, parallel that our stories have. But uh, as far as like when I came out to with my friends. It was like it was very similar, although not on the same level as when I had that kind of epiphany with with the drugs, where I, I gave over control and accepted that things were going to be all right, and they were all right. And my like my relationship with my friends has never been better. Uh, I, I just I don't go out with them when they, when they're drinking heavily, but I can still I can still do things like go out to trivia, like I'll still do those things with them and we still have a good time. I, it's just like I had it built up in my head. My perception of how things would be was so not reality. Like I was so convinced how adversely this would affect our friendship, that, that people weren't going to like me as well anymore. And it just wasn't the case. So the first few weeks Really, they made they went out of their way to make me comfortable. The first few weeks, they like wouldn't drink around me. Um, they the sense they they do now, but at first they they just they cut it out entirely when I was present, which I really appreciate. It just things got easier and they got easier fairly quickly, honestly. And yeah, it's just it's been incredible. 
So Nikki, you've been around recovery for five years. You got 101 days w- without all substances. During that time frame, you've you've probably done some intense navel gazing, and, and what I mean by that is you you've gone within and looked at the why behind the using and the drinking. Why is it? Do you think that you drank? We've all heard alcohol is but a symptom, um, covering up internal turmoil. Why do you think you drank? Why do you think you used? Oh, that's a really good question. Honestly, I just think that I was never, like we talked about, acceptance is, I think that step one of of 12 step teaches you acceptance. And the biggest thing for me was I was, I never accepted myself. I I was always trying to adhere to or conform to other people's idea of me, other people's opinions of me. I wanted to make other people's dreams, objectives, vision of myself my own. I, I never allowed myself to have my own dreams, have my own vision of myself. And I think that I drank a lot of times because I had this this false narrative of who I thought that I was. And alcohol helped numb it. It helped make it easier to swallow that I wasn't living my purpose. And yeah, I think that that was the main reason behind why I drank. I also believe that a lot of alcoholism and addiction comes from um, – adverse childhood experiences. Uh, My parents were divorced and there's a lot of emotional trauma growing up. So I I think that whenever anyone goes through that sort of thing, they're more susceptible to addiction, to a drinking. I think that also just kind of goes back to not being comfortable with who we are, with our perception of ourself and how we see the person that we are. I think that I had this flawed view of myself and I never allowed myself to be broken. Like if I were just to accept the fact that, Hey, you know, your family life isn't the ideal and that's okay. It's okay to be, it's okay not to be okay. And just allow myself to feel those feelings that it would have been less of an issue, but I never did that. I was always the type of person that had to remain stoic, that had to give this appearance as though I wasn't broken, even though I was. And, and those those breaks showed up through addiction. Nick, I love that form of acceptance. Like you said, it's okay to recognize parts of your life that aren't perfect and acceptance in that is comes with peace. And there's, there's been parts of my personality, sub personalities that I've, that I've squashed for, for years, but it's important that we accept all parts of our life, internal and external because if we if we ignore one completely, uh, which is impossible to do, it's going the voice will get louder and louder. So I'd love how you said that. And Nick, let's talk about cravings for a second. In the past 101 days, have you experienced cravings, and and what tools do you use to get past them? Cravings are interesting for me. They haven't been. I've gotten pretty good at not at dealing with them. For me, a craving is is just a thought, and it's, it's all about changing that thought process. So the cravings this time around have been a lot, a lot more mild compared to when I was getting clean off the hard drugs. But yeah, I mean, they've definitely been there. And whenever I experience one, I, I do what I call the stop method. So I'll, if I'm alone, I'll just literally yell stop. Or if I'm not alone, I'll, I'll think of it like very authoritatively in my head. And then I'll like clench up all my muscles and then I'll change my physiology. So I'll I'll yell stop, clench my muscles, release, and then take a few long deep breaths in through my nose, out through my mouth, and then think of like the most happiest place on earth. Think of like a vacation, 
And that honestly has helped me more than anything else when it comes to dealing with cravings. So recently I've been, I've been interested with cravings on the atomic level (laughs) and cravings are a series of connected thoughts that, that are gaining a vortex of energy. And so for example, a craving could be, could be measured at the atomic level. If you, if in a, in a world where you could just take this craving and put it on an atomic scale, it would actually give a reading. So it has a weight at the atomic level. Um, it's energy. All cravings are, and, and a craving specifically is an intense bundle of negative. Why don't we use the word negative? It's just an intense bundle of energy that our mind and body gets. And the mind translate that as, okay, it's telling me they need a drink. Now, just like you said, you will yell the word stop. You will clench body, your, your body. Um, but the yelling, the word stop is a release of this energy. And I love hearing strategies of how to get past cravings. One of them is a, 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 the reason why the 20 minute time frame works. Like, Hey Siri, set a timer for 20 minutes is because it allows this energy to transmute itself, to dissipate within the body and simply yelling, stop yelling into a pillow, perhaps taking a tennis racket and banging it into a pillow that is going to allow the energy to release from the body. So there's no shortage of tools to, to get rid of this, this energy vortex within called a craving. I love, I love your answer there. And Nick, you, you mentioned, um, it, it's called open discussion, OD movement. You've you mentioned this website. Talk to us more about that. This is project created with a mission of helping to change the dialogue surrounding addiction. You and me do the same thing, brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like I mentioned about my grandmother's passing, she passed away in 2018 and, uh, I wanted to do something to, to proactively try and address addiction. So I, I created my website, Open Discussion OD, the OD Movement, with the purpose of changing the dialogue around addiction, reassessing drugs in society, and providing aid to those in need. A lot of what I do is blogs. So I, I create new content weekly. Um, I also do podcasting. So I interview people very similar to your show, Paul, where we talk to other people who have dealt with addiction. Um, either first or secondhand, I interview a lot of family members of addicts because I think that a big thing with addiction is we view it too often through just the lens of the addict. And if we get a more societal broad view on it, then we can better help combat it. So I created it with that. It actually started out as an idea for a clothing brand. I was working at a clothing retail store and there's so many brands that give back to different initiatives. The one that inspired me was 10 tree, which is a pretty simple concept. Every item of clothing that you purchase, they plant 10 trees. And it was cool because you could see where in the country or the world, excuse me, the 10 trees that you contributed to planting were located. And I wanted to do something very similar following that same concept to create awareness with addiction. So we did that, ran, ran through our first run of products in right around the spring of 2018, spring, summer of 2018. And since that point this year, we've been focusing mostly on the message because that's what I'm passionate about. And that's that's where I want to put most of my attention. It's, it's a lot of work to try and keep up with the clothing apparel brand. So I, I've been focusing, like I said, on the content, building up blog posts, building a community and, and doing podcasts. And it's, it's what, what I'm passionate about. Well, Nick, it's a message that needs to be spread. Nice job with this project. And what is the podcast called Open Discussion as well? Yeah, the podcast is the OD Movement, yes. OD Movement, what is it, and what's how do we find the website? The website is at www.odmovement.com, and the podcast, you can just search the OD Movement on uh, basically all podcast platforms, Spotify, Google Play, the App Store, pretty well across podcasts. Gotcha. Platforms. 
So what are your thoughts on the opioid epidemic? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? What is the driver behind it? Is it separate from the addiction to alcohol? I'm excited to hear your answer. That's a really good question. I do think in a lot of ways it's getting better. It's just once you let the the cat out of the bag, it's hard to put it back in. And we, in the early 2000s, we really created an environment where they were giving out opioids and pain pills for everything. And now we're seeing the repercussions of that. 75% of people who use heroin now started on pain pills. And 20 years ago, that was not the case at all. And we're, we're seeing a lot of people progress to the use of heroin because it's cheaper and easier to get a hold of than the pain pills. So while I do think that it, a lot has changed, I still think that a lot needs to change. And it, it's very similar to other addictions. To me, all addictions are basically the same thing. Like if I didn't end up addicted to opiates, I would have ended up an alcoholic earlier. I, so sooner or later, I was going to be an addict of some form or another. And I think that it is directly correlated with, with honestly, it's just with this this obsession with anxiety consumerism where people just want to feel better and people are brainwashed into thinking that they're not okay. And I, I think that it needs to have a more fundamental change more than anything. We need to stop brainwashing people to believe that, that they're not okay. And we need to start just accepting people where they're at. Nick, I agree with, with much of what you said. And I, I feel that addictions are no more than signposts in life. And right. the opioid epidemic, the addiction epidemic that we're facing right now, like you mentioned, it's really no different than the alcohol epidemic, which actually by the numbers is, is more prolific than the opioid Absolutely. epidemic. Yeah, which, which sucks. But like you said, it's, it's almost like drinking is an accessory to enjoy a life. That's what we've been told. I love how you phrase that. And we are in a global wobble right now, especially in the United States of America. And there are some spots that have been impacted um, higher than others. And uh, there, there are institutions, the government, one of us, one of them that will, that, that are putting the idea out there that it's a substance based driver is in the opioids are creating the problem, which that isn't necessarily the case. Dr. Bruce Alexander has the infamous rat park experiment. You know, the, the government thought, I mean, there was, there was a, there was like 10 to, I should know these numbers off the top of my head. I just wrote about it in my book, but a large percentage of us troops were addicted to heroin in Vietnam. And they thought they were going to have a huge problem when these addicted troops came back to the United States of America, they had rehab facilities, treatment facilities in place. But what happened when you remove the soldier from the environment of the Vietnam war, the addictions for, for 90 plus percentage of the soldiers returning, the addictions went away. Now that was in a different time frame. That was the seventies in 2010. We're at 2019. Like you mentioned, anxiety, consumerism, there are more products than ever to address this internal unease. And we are in a wobble in a culture today that like we've never been at one before. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing because we have to go through this wobble to figure out what's not working. And, and then eventually we, we, we've got the right people in the right places. Well, you get the point. Hopefully we will get them and we'll get these issues figured out. I'm confident. Um, and, and I'm starting to see articles that, for example, I'll cover this in, a, in, in an upcoming episode where for three consecutive years, Americans are drinking less beer. Um, millennials might be the first generation to get this figured out. They're, they're drinking less. They're starting to drink at a later date in life. So even though uh, addiction is on the rise, there are pockets that show that we're going in the right direction. 
Yeah. And they say the opposite of addiction is connection. And I, I, I'm very familiar with that, the Rat Park experiment, as well as Vietnam, the vets coming back. And it, it's fascinating to me. Recently, I wrote a blog post talking about the link between addiction and consumerism. And it's crazy that on est- estimations claim that we see about 5,000 advertisements a day. And I just I wonder how many of those are for alcohol, how many are booze ads. It, we're literally inundated with this stuff. And we live in a consumer-based society. Consumerism is the theory that an increase in consumption of goods is economically desirable, which it's interesting because addicts operate under the flawed theory that the ever-increasing consumption of substances is necessary to maintain a desirable mindset. So just the parallels between consumerism and an addiction, an addictive mentality are are very interesting, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. And unfortunately, much of our modern day economy is built on addiction, addiction to acquiring external possessions. But awareness will cut through this like a sword. You know it. I know it. A lot of these, a lot of our listeners know it at the same time. And, and the opposite of addiction is connection, right? I love how you said that. I've said that before on the podcast, fully agree. So the opposite of addiction is not addressing supply. The opposite of addiction is not a war on drugs where we go and firebomb marijuana plants and, and seize cocaine at the border, etc. The opposite of addiction is addressing demand, and that's connection. If we address the internal disconnection, the demand for these products, which sure they're addictive, right? But um, the, the demand for these products dwindles, and hopefully we get to a point where there is no demand. There's no demand, nobody makes supply, did we just solve addiction, Nick? I don't think it's that simple. I think simple, we but... might have. In theory. In theory, we're there, Paul. <laughs> in theory, it's not quite that simple. But, uh, but Nick, we've reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Absolutely. Number one, Nick, worst memory from drinking. Ready, go. Oh, my gosh. Worst memory from drinking. Driving drunk and getting into an accident, wrecking my car, and waking up in the psych ward. Yeah, that's a good one. Huh. We've all heard of the oh shit moment. When was yours indicating that you can't control your drinking? Oh, I'm going to say with, this was more so with drugs. And this was when I woke up in uh, the ICU after my overdose in 20, 2000, uh, 2014. Yeah, I just couldn't function. And what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan in sobriety moving forward is to continue building the OD movement uh, and just keep doing the next right thing. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? My favorite resource in recovery... I would have to say is the Meeting Finder app for 12-step on my phone. I love that I can go to a meeting literally at any time, and I can just look it up right there. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received, you're exactly where you need to be. And if you weren't supposed to be there, you wouldn't be there. Love it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? It gets better. You have no idea how great life can be until you live a life free from the clutches of drugs and alcohol. And before we depart, Nick, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic if you wake up in the hospital and say, man, I shouldn't have done that last night. (laughs) That's a good one. I had a couple of those, unfortunately, but I know where you're coming from. Yeah, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Such a cool platform you got with the open discussion movement. Keep doing it, brother. Thank you, Paul Churchill. I really appreciate you. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much, my friend. Anthony Hopkins, or let me correct myself, Sir Anthony Hopkins, just hit 40 years sober. Holy shit. Nice job, man. 
I knew there was a reason I like Legends of the Fall. I'm pretty sure it takes place in Montana. And The Mask of Zorro. Hopkins says that his drinking affected how he felt during his young adulthood. He says, I hated the 60s. It was one long, wet Wednesday afternoon. For most of it, I was drinking myself into oblivion. Hopkins recalls that there were even movies he doesn't remember doing because he was so drunk. God, that's a great you might be an alcoholic if line right there, Mr. Hopkins. So during the filming of The Lion in Winter, for example, he bonded over alcohol with his co-star Peter O'Toole, saying, I had some bizarre nights with Peter when we made The Lion in Winter, but to be honest, I don't remember them. He enjoyed his drink, and I did too. We weren't close friends or anything, but we got drunk very quickly. So man, nice job, Anthony Hopkins. And then one more thing before we close it out. On April 23rd, the New York Post had an article titled, NYC's Sober Bar Scene is a Hip Oasis for Booze-Free Fun. I love seeing articles like this. So sober nightlife is taking off in New York City from posh mocktail bars to buzz-free pop-up parties. The objective, the objective to deliver a fun night without alcohol, which Americans are drinking less of these days. I'm actually going to cover that one next episode. According to a 2018 report by the beverage market analyzer IWSR. So this is, part of my French, fucking awesome. So what's happening here, supply is being created after demand is existing. What the demand is, is an environment where the toxin alcohol is no longer present. An environment where people aren't drinking an external substance called alcohol, so internally they feel like they have the power, the liquid courage to have conversations with other real people. Yeah, say it that way. I don't want to be in that environment either. So there's a demand for people to seek out environments that don't involve alcohol to hang out, to connect with other people. So there is a demand first, people create supply, which are these sober bars, sober nightlife, taking off in New York City. And I'm getting articles, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting like Facebook things sent to me where these sober pop-up bars, they're starting to pop up in smaller markets, not the New York Cities, the Chicago's, the London's, et cetera, but smaller towns. Will Bozeman, Montana ever have a, a uh, alcohol-free nightlife? I don't know. Um, might be me who does it. Who knows? I don't know. So pretty cool stuff. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I've absolutely loved putting it out there. Again, if you like this podcast, do me a solid, just leave a review. That's all you got to do. Helps a lot. Subscribe, rate, review, because I love you guys. Recovery Elevator. This all starts from the inside out. It's an inside job. Always has been, always will be. I love you guys. <laughs>